This is an AMI podcast. Welcome to My Life in Books, Authors Talking Books, presented by blind writer and broadcaster Red Sale from his home in London, England. Jonathan Whitelaw is an author, journalist and broadcaster with a darkly comic sense of humour and a love of detective fiction. Having worked on the front line of Scottish politics, he has now turned his talents to writing cosy crime. His Hellcorp novels featured the devil as a beleaguered manager and reluctant gumshoe. For his most recent series, The Bingo Hall Detectives, Jonathan has shifted the action to Penrith in the English Lake District, where we join a wily group of pensioners who like nothing better than getting their eyes down for a bit of murder and mayhem. Jonathan himself has recently moved to Ontario, but before he joins us from there, here's a clip of The Bingo Hall Detectives, narrated by Sid Sagar. We're not Starsky and Hutch. Would you please slow down? Jason gritted his teeth. His mother-in-law was a notorious backseat driver. Too fast, too slow, too close to the curb. Watch out for that cyclist. Wasn't that the turning there? Are we there yet? She had mentioned them all. It should have been a scenic drive through the lakes to the peaceful town of Penrith, not the cannonball run. His grip on the steering wheel tightened. I'm going at the limit, Amita, he said, trying to keep his voice light. I don't care what that thing says. You're going too fast, she fired back. I'd like to be able to see my grandchildren at least once more, if that's all right with you. Which reminds me, do you drive like a maniac with them in the car and I'm not here? Does your wife know about your lead foot? I know where I'd like to put my lead foot, he muttered. What? Nothing, he sighed. Silence descended in the car. Jason had been spending a lot of time with his mother-in-law recently, and it wasn't through choice. It wasn't that he disliked her. Amita Kutri could be very warm and generous when she chose to be. It was when she chose not to be that he had a problem. With everything that had been going on, he had enough problems to worry about. Bugger, did I bring my glasses? She said, reaching for her handbag. They're on your head, said Jason, concentrating on the road. So they are, she tutted. Rats, have I brought my pen? Front pocket of your bag. Yes, so it is, she said, finding her bingo blotter. Now I can't remember if I have the money to pay Georgie for that magazine subscription. You've rolled up a tenner and put it in the pocket of your cardigan. Amita patted her tummy where the pocket was. She cocked an eyebrow at Jason. Anyone would think you were spying on me. Jonathan Whitelaw, welcome to My Life in Books. Thank you very much for having me. Delighted to be here. Now, at the centre of the Bingo Hall Detectives is an unlikely crime-fighting duo. Can you introduce us to Jason and his mother-in-law? Absolutely. It would be my pleasure. I think Amita, the mother-in-law, would be affronted if I didn't introduce her that she's that kind of woman. <laughs> so Jason, uh, Jason Brazel, uh, when we meet him, is an out-of-work journalist from Penrith. And he lives with his family, his wife and his two kids, and his mother-in-law, Amita, uh, who is a well-to-do, 70-year-old uh, pillar of the local community. She's part of the bingo club, obviously. She's 
a member of the WI, uh, any committee, any organisation that's going on in Penrith, she is a part of it, but not just a part of it. She's at the, the eye of the storm, the uh, in, in the thick of it. And um, yeah, when, when we meet the pair of them, they aren't, they're not on the best of terms. Jason obviously has been out of work for a few months and he's stuck at home and she lives with him in, in that sort of traditional, that great British tradition of uh, son-in-laws and mother-in-laws not getting on. Uh, that very much is the case between Jason and Amateur. So uh, the, the kind of context, obviously, within the novel is that one of the, the, the fellow members of the bingo club, the Penrith Bingo Club, uh, dies in rather tragic circumstances, but Amita suspects that there might be something something more to it. So she sort of cajoles Jason, as she tends to do, into a proper investigation. And that's where it all kicks off. That's where the murder and mayhem begins. And Amita is something of a modern-day Miss Marple, really. She goes jogging in her shell suit. She's plugged into social media. She... Yes. Obviously plays a lot of bingo and she refuses to take no for an answer. Really, she's just got no off button, as I think Jason <laughs> observes at some point. And, yeah. and really, in contrast to Jason, who's rather deflated, he, as you say, he's lost his yeah. job on the local paper and he rather feels that life has passed him by. He doesn't even have a Facebook account. Yeah. That, that was very much a conscious decision on a, on my part. I think the book is, is an ode to many things. It's an ode to the Lake District, Cumbria in general. It's an ode to local journalism, as we as we touched on there. But it's also, I think, an ode to, to growing up. And I think it was a conscious decision on my part to have that dynamic between the two of them, the, the son-in-law, mother-in-law, which it, it can be very strained in real life. Not, not thankfully, not with, not in my circumstances, um, which I'm very, very lucky and very, very happy to see. But you know, you think about the concept of of, of an in-law. It, it's it, it's two people who are from more often than not are, are are from different generations who are brought together by one person in common, and um, they don't necessarily get on if if that one person in common wasn't there. But that person is there and they're forced, they're sort of forced to through hell or high water. And I think um, it was a conscious decision, um, little things on my part to not sort of go down that stereotypical route of a younger man and a, an older woman. And that's why I sort of made Jason quite technophobic and Amita the opposite. She's very much uh, clued up on, on, on Facebook and social media and WhatsApp groups. And that's how she's connected to the rest of the world and, and the rest of the universe pretty much. And of course the rest of the bingo club are, are exactly the same. And I think that's, that's the modern world now, and, and I'm I, I'm very much a technophobe, which is ironic given that I was a digital journalist for 12 years, but, it, you know, it still frightens me when you plug something in that the whole house is going to uh, go in a blackout because I've, I've short-circuited something. So there's an element of that, I guess, in, in uh, of me and Jason. But, um, but yeah, I, I it also, I mean, it's, it's a cosy crime novel, and I think having that sort of switch of dynamic gave me a lot of opportunities to... To, to have some good humour in it as well, I think. Hopefully, hopefully. Well, yeah, I mean, they very much need each other. It's a, it's a symbiotic relationship and uh, there, there's that ongoing tension throughout the book. You know, Will they find the murderer before they murder each other? <laughs> Which, um, yeah. They're, they're sparky characters. And I, I think one of the things that I really liked about 
Amita, is that she is an immigrant to the country. She arrived when she was six years old to Sheffield in Yorkshire, and she has had to make her own luck. Everything she has done, she has had to graft for. And there's an element of Jason that he, in days gone by, being white, middle-class, educated to tertiary standard, he could have expected a job for life. And he yeah. he no longer has that. And his defeatism really winds a meter up. Yeah, it, it's it's strange. It's it's a really, really strange thing to, to, to reflect on it because I get really wound up by defeatism. And I'll get you know, don't get me wrong, we're all we're all guilty of it. We all have our lowest ebb, I, I suppose. And I get really, really wound up by defeatism because I'm very much of the of the opinion that you know, there are lots and lots of things that you can't control in life, um, but there's lots of things that you can, and it's about maximising what you can control and not worrying about what you can't really. And Jason is the sort of polar opposite of that. And I think one thing that I was that I was worried about when I first came up with the character was that he wasn't going to be sympathetic because he does do a lot of moping. You know, he he's he is quite he is utterly defeated and with good reason. I mean, don't get me wrong; he, he's been put out of work of a job that he loves doing and through circumstances that he had no control over, obviously. And um, again, we're only human, right? And and there's only so much that I think some people can take. And and the danger that I worried about was not making him sympathetic. And I I think that was a real challenge for me and a real challenge for the editing process as well. And my wonderful editor at Harper North. Um, And hopefully hopefully we, we went some way to remedying that because I think in the first draft, certainly one issue that came up was that he himself wasn't very sympathetic towards the rest of the bingo club or indeed amateur. And and that was something that we worked on really really hard in the editing process was to make to make him more sympathetic as a character and hopefully to make readers more sympathetic to him. Uh, and again, you know, with with the great thing about cozy crime is that you've always got that outlet for humour, and humour is a great leveller, and humour is a great way of coping as well. There, there have been countless studies down the years that you find um, jobs, professions, journalism is one of them where humour is used to deal with the hubris um, and deal with, with the very, very serious issues that are going on. And I think the cosy crime element of it gives afforded me as a writer, certainly, um, a lot more room to to inject that humour in there and hopefully to make to make Jason, to have readers come round to him eventually. And indeed, Amita come round to him as well. Now, as you said, it's not just Amita and Jason who are investigating the... Yeah. Unexplained death of Madeline Frobisher. The other bingo hall detectives are a colourful bunch. Um, <laughs> could you quickly give us thumbnail portraits of the other three? Yeah, certainly. So, so there's Ethel. There's dear old Ethel. She's the oldest member of the of the club, and uh, she sort of gets dismissed as being too old and a bit doolally and not really making a lot of sense. But without going into too many details and too many spoilers, she's not quite as daft as she first uh, she first appears. Uh, and then there's Sandy, of course, uh, huge Sandy, who's a, a former former doorman from London. So he's a, uh, he was great fun to write. I, I thoroughly enjoyed writing Sandy because I, I always found that he, he almost acts as the story's conscience. 
uh, in a strange sort of way. Um, and he's, he's very down to earth and he, 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 he very straight talking. He, again, he's from that sort of generation of men that their work was their life. And his work was relatively glamorous in the in the sort of swinging sixties London. He was a he was a doorman, and um, and he's got lots and lots of stories to tell. And then there's Georgie Littlejohn, who is um, she's the self anointed queen and doyen of the Penrith Bingo Club, and she has a healthy or perhaps it's an unhealthy rivalry with with Amita to decide who's the top dog. And she's just as you know just as well to do. She's just as a uh, just as connected, just as um, busy as as Amita. But she has a um, a sort of mean streak that I think Amita doesn't have. I think Amita fundamentally is a is a is a lovely person. Whereas Georgie, it's a little questionable at times as to her motives and things. And again, when I was writing that, when I was writing those characters in particular, the, the sort of back and forth that Georgie has with Amita, I had an absolute ball writing those scenes. And and one one thing that I love to do as a writer is I love to have characters who are in conflict with each other. But more more importantly, I like to have characters who are in conflict with each other who have to pull together for a common goal. So that you know that sort of mantra was at the core of Jason and Amita's relationship. And what was great about having someone like Georgie Littlejohn, and she, I think that I think there's a line in the in, in the book that I say that Georgie Littlejohn is is the type of woman who's who has you have to name both her names. You have to say her full name whenever you're in conversation with her or talking about her. She's that type of person. And um, one of the great parts that came about from from creating a character like that is that actually you've you've suddenly got a common goal between you know almost a co- common enemy that Jason and Amita have uh, outside of their their fractious relationship. And again, Jason can be very sympathetic to to Amita in having to deal with someone like Georgie Little John and so on and so forth. So again, it was it was a really important part of it, I think, to to have a cast of characters, particularly within the context of the of the bingo club, that were very, very different and reflective of the elderly community in twenty twenty three or twenty twenty two when 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 the book came out. Yeah, I mean, it's very much a, a feature of cosy crime that you underestimate your grey head citizens at yeah. your peril. And yet it is exactly the trap that the detective inspector, who is meant to be investigating this crime, falls into. Yeah, absolutely. Albie, um, yeah, he's actually, I, I was going to say he's very loosely based on some old newspaper editors of mine, but it's probably not, it's probably not that loose. <laughs> I, think, I think I've been shouted at and scalded and uh, had just general malaise and uh, contempt thrown in my direction um, from a few editors down the, down the years. A, a very similar relationship that Albie has with, with Jason that I've had with, with old editors. Obviously, he's a police officer, not, not, a, not a newspaper editor. But yeah, it, it, he, he, again, he was a lot of fun to write because he has this fundamental dislike of Jason. And it's for various reasons. And again, I, I don't want to go into too many details in terms of spoilers and things like that. It is for various... Some reasons are, are fairly legitimate, but others it's just he's a grumpy old man, quite frankly, who's, who's nearing retirement. And um, and again, having that sort of relationship and having those moments where the two of them are so diametrically opposed and they have to they have to converse with each other is great fun. That's 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 the great fun about for me for for being a writer is not only creating these characters but putting them in the same room and 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 having them have a massive fight. Quite frankly, <laughs> <laughs> now the other big character in the Bingo Hall Detective series is 
Penrith. Yeah. And I've read somewhere a, a great quote from you. Location is as important to cosy crime as forensic evidence is to police procedural. Yeah. It's um, very kind of you to attribute a quote like that to me. I don't remember saying that, but I'm, I'm, I'm sure oh, I did. I'll take credit for I it. I found that online. I'd, I'd take that. If I, I oh, absolutely. I think that's going to my head. I quite like that. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know the, the, the funny thing is, speaking of that type of stuff, when the audiobook for The Bingham Hall Detectives came out last year, I was doing an event up in Cromarty, which is up in the, uh, the Highlands of the Black Isle. And I drove up and that was the first time that I'd got to hear the full thing. And it's wonderfully narrated by an actor called Sid Cigar. And he did such a wonderful job of it. And there were times where I genuinely thought, oh, that's really well written. I wonder who wrote that. And then had to remind myself that it was me that wrote it. And I was like, oh, my God, have I become one of those one of those divas? I've not, by the way, for the record, I've, I've not. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, it's a, a very, very similar moment with that quote. So thank you very much. Um, yeah, location, yeah, it, it, it's a staple of the cosy crime genre. Mostly because you don't have gratuitous violence in, in cosy crime novels. I always say that a cosy crime novel, you'll still have a murder usually, but you never see the, the, the knife go in. And I do, I do quite a bit of teaching. I do quite a bit of workshops um, here in Canada for creative writing. And I always say that to my, to my students. I always say that that's the big, big difference between a cosy crime novel and, let's say, a police procedural is that you will not get a blow-by-blow description of the murder itself or the aftermath of, of, of something terrible that's that's happened. So to substitute something like that, I mean, it's not to say that police procedurals don't have you know wonderful dedication to location and things like that, but in cosy crime in particular, for me as a writer, um, the, the location is key. Uh, and is a, is a big, big part of, of how you tell the story because invariably you will find that parts of the location will bleed into the plot for various reasons. Sometimes it will be, you know, something as simple as wherever the crime has happened, that's where the where the story will take place. But also in terms of like character, you know, somewhere like Penrith, very, very dear to me as a, as a place, spent a lot of time there uh, throughout my life, actually. And Penrith and Cumbria in particular, have that wonderful balance of rural and but also having urban as well maybe not on the same scale as big big cities like Glasgow, Manchester, Liverpool, London obviously but you can have urban settings in places like Carlisle and and Penrith obviously and then literally 10 minutes down the road you're in the middle of the the Lake District and you're you're gazing across Mm -hmm. Allswater which has been untouched for you know a bazillion years or what have you. And I think particularly for the bingo hall detectives, I think that sort of hopefully some of the Cumbrian character comes across in it um, because it's a beautiful, beautiful uh, part of the, not just the UK, but the world actually. And I'd always encourage people to, to go and see it. But yeah, lo- location is a, is, a, is a big, big part of it for me as a, as a cosy writer. And it, yeah, it can make things easy for you as a cosy writer. If you, if you get the location right, if you get the setting correct, it can unlock a whole load of, of great elements that you can feed into the characters, into the story, into the plot, and just give it that sort of depth. And similarly, if you don't get it right, you find that you're Sisyphus pushing the, the, the boulder up the, up the hill <laughs> uh, forever. Um, so yeah, it takes a good bit of thought and it always takes, always takes centre stage, really. I mean, I know Penrith very, very well as well. And it, it, it was wonderful to 
have it so vividly recreated on the page. It it, it is utterly recognisable. I, I was you. pinching myself to to see if the the church hall actually was just the one building that I'd missed when <laughs> it was lost up there. But of course, you, you've created that. But the Musgrave monument yep. is there, as is the fact that whilst it might appear to be an area that has been unchanged for a thousand or so years. Actually, it is changing. Certainly one of the characters there, one of the farmers, is experiencing the encroachment of a more urban way yeah, of living. Yeah, it's, it's happening everywhere, isn't it? It's I mean, before we moved across to Canada, we lived on a on a brand new estate it was a brand new house that, that we had we were the the first owners in fact we'd, we'd watched it get built essentially and when i was growing up in the same area it's, it's in the south side of glasgow when i was growing up in that area where our house was was just all fields it, it was it was fields as far as the eye could see and then when we lived there it was completely urbanized and, and not just the the site where we were it was continued to, to grow and grow and grow and and i remember speaking to the to the site manager and he'd mentioned that there, there was essentially a 30-year project where it was going to connect up a, another similar estate that was happening maybe about 15 20 miles down the down the road and then it would just all be urbanized within the sort of three decades and and you know, I'm I'm not um, I'm not an anti-progress person. I'm not. I, I don't consider myself to be someone that, that says that you know we shouldn't be doing this and people shouldn't be getting homes and, and stuff like that. Far from it. Um, but I think one of the jobs, and this comes from my journalism background, I guess. I think one of the jobs of being a writer and being an author, particularly if you're a contemporary author, is that you reflect the world that 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 you're writing in and and, and the setting that's that's happening there and. And exactly as you say, Red, it's it's happening in places like Penrith and Cumbria, and it's but it's happening all over the place, and it's it's a reflection of the of the of the country that that the, the setting is based in. And I, I, I'm certainly not preachy about it. I try not to be preachy. You, you, writers they, they try their very best not to be preachy. I, I, I think I think we all do. Um, but it, it's you know you, you you do have a sort of duty, or I certainly feel that duty to to reflect the times that the, that the book's set in, just the same way that you would if you were writing a historical novel. Yeah, I mean, certainly there is ample opportunity for social observation when writing about a place, especially one that you know well. I, I was very much struck when poor Jason goes off for the job interview from yes. hell yeah. uh, at a call centre, and he goes to one of these very carelessly thrown up industrial yeah. estates on the outside of Penrith that that blight, I think, pretty much every... Yeah. British town and and many further beyond that, and you describe it as looking like a chocolate box that was emptied of its contents. <laughs> we all know exactly what you mean. It's it's soulless, thoughtless, semi-urban planning. And yeah. um, as I say, I know Penrith well, and I thought it was a shoe in that the castle was going to make an appearance yep. in the Bingo Hall detectives. I know there's a sequel just about to come out. I haven't managed to read it yet, but I hope that you're going to give us a little bit of insight into it and tell me whether the castle makes an appearance. Um, I don't think it's a spoiler to say that the castle makes a fairly important appearance in the village of Vendetta. I think that's. I think I, I'm more than happy to, to let to let the readers know that. Yeah, <laughs> it's. Um, I must admit, I do like the castle. I do like the ruins. I've, I've again, I've walked around it. 
I, you know, the, weird, the weird thing about it is the, the thing that always sticks in my mind when I think about the castle and the ruins, because, because it's so close to the railway station, you, you, you see it sort of towering over the car park as you pull into Penrith. And I remember going for a walk around there with, with my wife. Uh, it was before we were married. It was years and years and years ago, decades ago now. And uh, we we like that sort of thing. You know, we, we're members of the National Trust and, and uh, all this, and, and we, love, we love an information plaque. My wife and I absolutely adore an information plaque. And anytime we see one, it doesn't matter what we're doing or where we're going. If we see it, we have to go over and read it line for line. And, and you know, they're, they're always they're always brilliant, right? And uh, and we saw this and we went for a walk. Because, of course, you can walk around it. You know, you can walk around the ruins and, and, and what have you. And we were reading this information plaque and then um, it, it pointed over to where the, the, you know, the, the, the Grand Hall, I think it was, uh, would have been or should have been. And in the corner of the ruins was like crisp packets and can empty cans of lager and and you know cigarette packets and stuff like that and i thought if that's not a reflection of the modern world then i don't really know what is but of course the rest of the place was completely was completely immaculate and it's it's just it's that wonderful juxtaposition between a, a castle that's centuries old and no good punk teenagers using it to to smoke cigarettes that, that they're not allowed to be smoking. So yeah, in answer to your question, it is. It does. It features in the. Uh, it features in the second one, um, and the car park may have a pivotal role to play within the uh, greater plot. But that is all you're getting from me. I, my lips are sealed. Excellent. <laughs> uh, a teaser with no spoilers. That's what we like on this show. As we've mentioned, you were a journalist before you turned your hand to writing crime. And we will discuss more about your background and how that informs your writing after this break. Share your views on the books you love with Red. Email feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail by calling 844-122-1111. Welcome back to My Life in Books, where this week I'm in conversation with Jonathan Whitelaw. Jonathan, just before the break, we were talking about some of the tropes of cosy crime. And one of the things we didn't mention is that it's one of those rare genres where you have characters generally being nice to each other and offering each other help, support and advice in amongst the murder and mayhem. Is that another reason that you chose to write it over, I don't know, maybe a police procedural or something a bit more bloody? I think so. I think um, I've always loved cosy crime and and exactly as you say, Red, one of the, one of the main staples of it that I love is the, is the almost friendlier nature of it. I think mm. just in, as a general theme, just as a general feeling, one of the big motivations for me writing the Bingo Hall Detectives in particular um, was escapism, quite frankly, because I don't think that there's a coincidence that cosy crime has seen this massive resurgence over the last three, four, five, six years or so, given everything that we've all been through. You know, it's it's been a it's been a rough couple of years for for everyone, and uh, and I think cosy crime in particular offers a it offers an escapism that's a sort of safety blanket, you know, police procedurals, sci-fi, fantasy, that type of thing. There's always an element of danger there. And, and it's not to say you can't get an element of danger in cosy crime, of course. But I think with a cosy mystery in particular, the reader 
is almost assured that things will, will only ever hit a certain level of frantic or, 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 or chaos or bedlam or, or violence, obviously. And, and, and I think there's a great comfort in that. And there was certainly a great comfort in it for me as the writer. When I used to sit down to, to, to write the first draft and, and do edits and things like that for, for the Bingo Hall Detectives, I used it almost therapeutically because it was a great escape for me to just sink into the world of, of Jason and Amateur and mm. know that for however long that I was doing that writing session, then I would be in safe hands, if that kind of makes sense. But I do think that the, the, the cosy genre has that, that unique ability through things like an emphasis on humour, emphasis on character and an emphasis on niceness and 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 a lot more exactly as you say red a friendlier disposition i think that's one of the reasons that it's remained so popular for so long but also going through this wonderful resurgence i also sensed a sadness for uh, an era of journalism past that i mean you and i both started on local papers and that area of journalism has gone, and yet that's where you find out exactly what makes up a population of people. <laughs> you get the most Absolutely. bizarre stories, you get some shocking stories. It, it is probably the best training for anybody who wants to be a serious writer. Yeah, definitely. I, I couldn't agree more. Could not agree more. What I learned on, on local journalism stuck and stays with me throughout my career. It, it's such a fertile breeding ground of of great journalism, but also exactly as you say, of writing too. It, you know, the, the Bingo Hall Detectives is as much an ode to, to Cumbria and growing up as it is to, to journalism and in particular local journalism, because local journalism, I think, has always played a, a very, very important two-pronged approach. It's always been reflective of the local patch that it covers. And exactly as you say, it goes from the banal and mundane to the shocking and horrific sometimes, unfortunately. Um, but it covers it regardless. And in turn, usually local newspapers in particular are very, very fondly thought of and have remained fondly thought of down through generations uh, and usually reflect a lot more that the local community than, say, a national and international, obviously, media outlet can, can ever do. But also, from an internal point of view, as journalists, having a, a background in local papers, it's a great place that when you when you become qualified, you will have everything thrown at you and you will very, very quickly learn the craft and your trade as, as a journalist. Good and bad. You know, again, that's, that, that's, that's the thing about it as a profession is that it's not all hunky-dory, far from it. But a lot of it can be. And a lot, it's always good fun. Um, but you do, you, you learn so quickly when you're on a local patch and you learn skills for the job, for journalism that you then take on throughout your career, but also for life as well. I mean, I, I've got, I've got very, very fond memories from when I did work for the Dunfermline Press in, in Fife. And what always struck me was, again, just that loyalty that the local community had to the paper. I mean, I, it, it never, ever happened to me ever again as, as a journalist, but I remember locals would come to the office. They would come, literally come to the office, knock on the door and say, can I speak to one of the journalists? I've got a story for them. You know, that never, ever happened when I worked for a national, a daily, just because the, there's there's that gap between the the people that the, the outlet serves and, and the people that are reporting on the news. And and I think yeah, one of, one of the, the saddest things that's happened globally, it's it's the same over here in Canada, but it's happening all over the world, is the is the, the, the slow but steady closure of these local newspapers. And, and and exactly as I said, it's it's not just for the local community, but it's also for the profession of, of journalism. 
So I think I, I wanted that to be a fairly prominent part of the the Bing Hobble Detectives, and it, it was arguably it was one of the, the main reasons that I made Jason a journalist, and particularly an out of work journalist, because you know he is a character who's spent twenty years on on the local beat, and it's where he grew up, and it's it's it's, it's as much part of his life as 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 anything else, really. I'm going to quote your words back at you again, I'm afraid. Oh, no, but, uh, clearly journalism is a vocation. And there's a, there's a wonderful line where um, Jason realises that true vocation seeks no external validation. Journalism has become glory hunting and he's not that kind of journalist. He just wants to no. get to the bottom of little mysteries and if that little mystery ends up being murder well so be it it's still the same job yeah absolutely absolutely that and uh, you know i've said i think since the book came out that uh, jason is is a better journalist than i ever was <laughs> which is which is which is glib it's not i promise you there's no hyperbole there um and that's coming from a former tabloid journalist who's 90 percent hyperbole um, yeah, that's exactly it. He he is pure of heart when it comes to his journalism. Um, and it's something that actually I don't think he ever gives himself enough credit for. And Amita, on the other hand, does. And, and I think he he sometimes doesn't see that. And he certainly doesn't see it when he's, he's stuck searching for jobs for, for months on end. But he, he is, he, he's, a, he's a good journalist uh, at his core. And he knows how to do it. And he knows how to do it well. And sometimes it takes uh, a little word in his ear from his moaning old mother-in-law to, to remind him of that. Or the shock of going for a job interview at a call centre <laughs> and realising that if that's the only alternative, yeah. then really. Yeah. And you take a, a fantastic sideswipe at the monotony of some of the jobs on offer for people who might otherwise have gone into more interesting jobs. And that's certainly something that you explore in your Hellcorp novels, where we have the devil as a manager with a headache who's buried <laughs> with bureaucracy, who's just desperate to go on holiday. I always thought hell was meant to be a fairly kind of lively place. But no, you paint it as possibly the most boring place you could work. <laughs> Where did that come from? Um, well, do you know, it's, I was going to say divine intervention, but that's the, uh, that's, it's the polar opposite of that, isn't it? <laughs> The big inspiration for me with the Hellcorp novels was that I, and I maintain this actually, that um, I've always considered myself not clever enough to write a crime novel, quite frankly. It's it's born out of so many people doing so many great work. You know, we live in a wonderful golden age, a new golden age of, of crime writing. And so many great writers are doing such great work uh, across all elements of the genre, cosy, police procedural, psychological thriller, you know, you name it, they're they are doing such great work. And Five, six years ago, when, when I first had the idea, I thought, well, we've had every anti-hero detective under the sun. What happens if we have the ultimate anti-hero, or, or indeed the ultimate anti-anything, um, which, which would be <laughs> Satan himself? And um, and I always thought if I was going to have a crack at doing a crime novel, I wanted to, wanted to try and usurp it a little bit and try and you know move the goalposts around to, to suit me as a writer more so than me necessarily trying to shoehorn myself into uh, an industry and a genre that, as I said, has got such fantastic work going on there because, quite frankly, I knew that I wouldn't be able to, to cut it. Um, so I think the the idea of, of the hell that, that features in Hell Corp and, and the devil um, who longs to get away from all of that, I think it comes about just from from trying to be a little bit different, you know, trying maybe to turn everything on its head and and to, to quote the Rolling Stones, sympathy for the sympathy devil. Sympathy for the devil, you know? yeah, absolutely. <laughs> because I don't think anybody, you know, I don't, I don't think anybody would want to be stuck in, in that sort of situation. I also think that if there is a hell, 
and it's tailored to individual people. That's what it will be like for me. Mountains of paperwork and mountains of bureaucracy and um, forms to fill in and stuff like that, because that is very much my idea of hell. And it happens all too often, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> so the poor devil gets shoved into a human body, sent down to Earth and partnered up with Jill Gideon, who's a great character. Um, another unlikely crime-fighting duo. Yeah. I get this this uh, gleeful delight when you have two characters who absolutely loathe each other, who just cannot get on for various reasons, some good, some bad, but they have to team together. You know, I, I grew up watching the Lethal Weapon movies, and that's a you know, classic buddy cop movie. Mel Gibson is reckless and, and, and has a death wish. Danny Glover is a family man who's ready to retire, you know, and the, the, the pair of them just don't get on. Right, obviously the odd couple, the classic Walter Matthau and, and Jack Lemmon, is the embodiment of that type of stuff. And I've always loved um, positions of authority being cut down to size. So I'm a big, big Dad's Army fan. And one of the great dynamics within that show is between Captain Mannering and, and Sergeant Wilson. And some of the best comedy for me is when Captain Mannering, who is this utterly pompous, total uh, snob. Facing adversity, don't get me wrong, you know, but some of the best moments for me is when he is utterly cut down to size. And Terry Pratchett was always so masterful about having characters who, who consider themselves to be much mightier than they actually are and being able to bring them straight back down with one line, you know, one uh, searing criticism or indeed one moment of genuine kindness. And I've always loved that. And it's something that I do strive to, to, to achieve within my own writing and, and Hell Corp obviously is 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 a good example of me trying to do that because the, the devil within the context of novels is utterly repugnant as you would expect him to be but not necessarily in the ways that he's been portrayed through the centuries you know he, he is a snob he's a total know-all uh, and again within the big hall detectives too uh, to a certain degree it sometimes happens to Amita it certainly happens to Georgie Littlejohn time and time again mm. and these are the moments that I enjoy writing the most. And, and and I've always been a great believer that you write the novel that you would like to read. Me as the writer, if I'm having a great time creating these characters and creating these moments and dialogue between them, then hopefully that will organically bleed into the novel. It's something that actually really comes through for those of us who listen to our books rather than read them in print. If the narrator isn't convinced, you can quite often tell, and yeah. it's not always a, an easy listen. And Sid Sagar was clearly having the time of his life when he was reading he was. all the detectives. <laughs> he was, he was, yes. Yeah. Sid, Sid is is absolutely fantastic. I, he, I, I'm very, very lucky. I mean, I when I was told that Sid had got the gig, or indeed he was in contention for the for the gig. Um, what he did was actually he texted me and then he phoned me and he said, Jonathan, what you know, what's what's your thoughts? I, I've had a couple of ideas, you know, in terms of the voices, in terms of the narration and things like that. Um, but I wanted to get your thoughts. And I, first and foremost, I was uh, a little starstruck because Sid has been in nearly every biggest, massive, fantastic movie over the last ten <laughs> years or what have you that there's going. He's in the Batman and all all this kind of stuff. Uh, and then, and then I had this sort of um, terrible imposter syndrome because the weird thing was that when I was when I was sitting writing the Bingo Hall Detectives, I actually didn't hear the characters, um, their voices. Um, so Sid said, "You know, I've got a couple of ideas. Why don't Why don't I send you over a, a couple of samples?" And I said, "That'd be great. That'd be fantastic." I felt like such a big shot that Sid Cigar was was sending me this stuff over. So he went away for about twenty minutes and he sent across a demo. It was a section that had Amita, Jason, and Di Albi in it. 
as well as a little bit of narration. So he had four very, very separate voices and honestly read, my jaw hit the floor. And I thought, do you know what? That's it. That's those characters. Mm-hmm. That's Amata. That's Jason. That's Albie. And the narration, obviously, is the, the narration there. So I've been very, very, very lucky with, with Sid. Um, because you're right, he, he was so enthusiastic about it from the off before he even started work on it, really. And again, you know, what, one of the big things that I always say about writing is that it's such a team effort. And I think a lot of people forget that. I think a lot of writers forget it. But I, I, I think a lot of people, particularly those who are aspiring writers, they don't realise how big a team effort it is. And when you, when you get lucky, as I have been, and I've been very, very lucky, when you have editors like mine, like Jen Pegg, who just gets me as a writer, but she gets the characters, she gets the setting, she gets the world of, of the Bing Hall Detectives. And then in turn, Sid Cigar, who who got it as well from the off. And you're right, you know, we've all been there. We've all listened to audiobooks that that you think, oh, you know, that, 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 there's something maybe a little amiss here. And I'm grateful to hear you say that that, that you got that enthusiasm from Sid because I, I it's something that, again, I, I'm hugely privileged to have, to have been, a, been a part of. A very small part of it. He's he's got to read it, of course. He's got to do all the hard work. I just write the stuff, you know. <laughs> well, I was going to say, do you now hear his voice in your head when you're writing Jason and Amita? Do you know what I do? I'm I'm working on the third one at the moment, and um, weirdly, I actually hear his narrating voice probably more than I hear the character's voice. But there are times where I will put a line of dialogue from Jason or Amita and I will hear his version of, of those characters and then I'll go back and edit it because it doesn't sound like what they would sound like with, with Sid's narration. But the narration part has been a really, really, it, that's been a bit of a revelation actually because hearing him read the parts in between dialogue and the movements and the scene descriptions and you know big, big scenes, sort of climactic scenes and revelation scenes and things like that. Uh, I now hear him in my head reading them out, and it, weirdly, I think it. I think it helps. I do genuinely think it helps. It helps the whole writing process because a lot of authors do say it, though. I'll, I'll, and it's not something that I that I've done before. It's not something I've ever done before in the process. But a lot of authors do say that what they'll do is when they finish a manuscript or if they're finding a particular section tricky, they will read it aloud. So it was never something that I that I did before. But now, I think because Sid has done such a wonderful job with the with the series. Uh, I can't help but hear his, hear his voice, and that's not that's not necessarily a bad thing. More, more Sid Cigar <laughs> in, in one's life is is uh, is, is definitely a, a plus, a perk of the job. <laughs> <laughs> no writer worth his salt can not be an avid reader too, and we're just about to hear the books of your life, but. Are many of them books that you've listened to as audiobooks, or are you still a bit of a print purist? I'm very lucky that I get a lot of books through for work. Uh, so whether it's for a professional review with my journalism hat on, or if uh, lovely authors would like me to say something nice about their work. And invariably, it, it's always nice because, as we've already talked about today, there are so many wonderful writers. It genuinely feels like a wonderful golden age, particularly for crime, but in, in, in all those genres of, of, of fiction. So a lot of that, obviously, because the audio versions aren't, aren't recorded yet, I do I do read the print versions. I try to listen to as much uh, audio as I can. I recently read uh, Vasim Khan's uh, Malabar House, uh, the first in, in that series, and I had a fairly extensive drive. I suppose every drive over here in Canada is fairly extensive, and I <laughs> downloaded the audio version of it, and that was absolutely fantastic. And, you know, it's something that I think in the last couple of years, 
I've gotten back into. I used to listen to a lot of audio dramas when I was when I was younger, you know, sort of mid mid to late teenager. I'm a big big Doctor Who fan, and I grew up in that era of Doctor Who in the nineties where there was it wasn't on TV. So, you know, you got your fix from the, the Virgin New Adventures and the Big Finish audios. So I used to listen to a lot more of them and then obviously went to university and life happened and got in the way. Um, but I have been listening to a lot more audio versions of books and it's amazing how, how different but the same they can be. And again, this is maybe because I am a writer. I, I'm always fascinated to hear that narration, particularly if it's a narration from, from someone who isn't the author, because I think... Mm it can be completely different. It feels like a completely different story, even though you know what's what's coming along. We talked about it earlier on, didn't we? There were whole swathes when I first listened to the audio version of, of the Bingo Hall Detectives where I was a bit like, oh my goodness, you know, who wrote this? It's fantastic. And then realised it was me and didn't think it, didn't think it was as fantastic. Um, but it is, it's, it's strange when you know what's coming up, you know, if, if you've read the book already and, and then you listen to the audio version of it. And then, of course, you get a completely different perspective if you only listen to the audio version of it. So it's something that I'm definitely finding myself steering more towards because it's a lot of fun. And exactly as, exactly as you've said, Red, you know, when, when, you, when you capture that lightning in the bottle of a great book with a fantastic narrator, you know, you, can't, you really can't beat that. You, you, you genuinely can't beat it. It's absolutely fantastic. It really is. Well, on that note, I think I'd better start inquiring about the books of your life. So, Jonathan, was there a book that you read as a youngster that made you fall in love with reading or want to become an author? Do you know, when I'm asked about when I, when I used to read when I was younger, I always remember um, when I was in primary one, my P1 teacher, the lovely Mrs. Arthur, she encouraged she encouraged every, all, the, all the kids and all the parents to do it, obviously, but she encouraged my mother in particular to get me to read anything, quite literally anything. And she said, even the Beano. Um, and she wasn't being derogatory. I always I always have to add that, uh, add that caveat in that she wasn't being derogatory towards comics as a medium or what have you, or indeed the Beano. Um, but she said, it, it was just a way of encouraging my mother to get me to, to, to be encouraged to read. And of course, my mother went out and bought the Beano and, and then my, my gran very much took up the mantle when I was growing up uh, of getting the Beano every single week. And it's I still get the Beano annual every year for Christmas. My late grandmother used to get me it every, every single year and she passed away about 10 years ago and my mother still gets me it. So I've got a whole collection now that dates back about, yeah, it must be about 30 odd years, um, which is great. And I read it, that's the thing, I read it every year. I, I read it every year and it's absolutely wonderful. So I guess the Beano, well, it's not a book necessarily ha has always played an important part in, in my reading process because that's the thing. I've not stopped reading since. One book always jumps out to me, though. One book that I always remember reading, um, it was the very first grown-up book that I ever bought with my own money, and it was uh, Heir to the Empire, Star Wars Heir to the Empire um, by Timothy Zahn. Um, and again, growing up in the 1990s was a bit of a lull. As hard as this is to believe, there was a bit of a lull when it came to Star Wars content in the 1990s because the last film had come out in 83, I think it was, and The Phantom Menace didn't come out until 1999. So while there was a glut of visual Star Wars, there was a, certainly plenty of comics and expanded universe novels, and Heir to the Empire is considered to be you know, the sort of resurgence of that. I think it came out in the early 90s. And I bought it on a caravan trip to Ayrshire when I must have been about seven or eight and of course, it was Star Wars, and it's got Han Solo and Luke Skywalker and Princess Leia on the cover, and X Wings and Stormtroopers and all that. So I was completely smitten. And I remember, I remember getting back to our caravan on the holiday and starting to read it and thinking, "Gosh, this is this has got a lot of words in it." <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, it's not you know on reflection. I've got it actually. I've got it. I'm looking at it just now. I've got it on my bookshelf. I found the I found the original copy when we moved over. 
to Canada. So that that was, you know, I, I ended up, re- you know, I've read it to death since then, and and it's wonderful, and it will always have that sort of special place in in in, in my pantheon because it was the first grown up book that I ever bought, and it probably was most of it went over my head, and I skipped a few pages just to get to the Han Solo, Millennium Falcon <laughs> parts, but but it's a very very good reading. You can still get it, which is which is lovely. Fantastic. And is there a book that on a rainy day you'd like to curl up with and reread? Oh gosh, lots, lots and lots of them. Um, I'm going through a bit of a mythology obsession at the moment, actually. And Stephen Fry's trilogy of Mythos, Heroes and Troy have been absolutely wonderful. Really, really enjoyed those. And uh, I did, would you believe, I did actually start rereading. I think I I, I had a, a spare five minutes uh, between review copies and, and all the rest of it. Uh, and I did start rereading uh, Mythos, which is the first one. So it's, it's Stephen Fry retelling very much to a modern audience, but with his wonderful humour and his wonderful mastery of, of, of the English language, uh, the retelling of the of the Greek myths. So, you know, you, you've got the mythos very much starts at the beginning of, of time, essentially, and the, the, the battle between the Titans and, and the Olympian gods and things. And it's told with such a masterful subtlety that you can't help but be completely, completely lost in it. And you know, he very much says that um, there's absolutely no way that you're going to remember all these names and who everyone's related to and all the rest of it. So I'll try my best to to, to remind you when it comes to the important parts. And just that, that fantastic, almost salt-of-the-earth approach to what is a massive amount of mythology, thousands and thousands of years of not only the, the stories themselves, but also the interpretations of those stories. Um, to be able to, again, it's that sort of usurping of authority, right, that we talked about with my with my books um and I, of course black adder and, and Frank laurie did that so masterfully well too and yeah it's a great read it's it's a fantastic read and of course the stories themselves are brilliant you know these these stories have been retold endlessly in in various forms for so so long now so I, I'm, I'm i'm a great believer that a good story is always a good story and and you really can't beat mythology for for that sort of content so yeah certainly mythos by stephen fry and he narrates the audiobooks himself, so what's not to like? <laughs> exactly, he does. And again, there's someone who has a, a, a real passion and a real enthusiasm for what it is that he's doing. And it's, it's it, you know, it is genuinely infectious. And finally, is there a book you've read recently that you'd like to share with the listeners? Uh, absolutely. Well, there's, there, there's a few, actually. And you, of course, you can, only, you can only really pick one for these sorts of things. But I'm a big, big fan of G.M. Hall, so Jonathan Hall. He's actually become a, a, a very dear friend of mine. He's another cosy writer. Um, he's had a wonderful sort of career in uh, radio plays and he's a teacher as well. And I don't know where he finds the time, quite frankly, but his uh, A Spoonful of Murder, which was out last year, I believe, was absolutely fantastic. And it's about retired school teachers, Liz, Pat and Thelma, and they have to solve a murder. But his most recent one, again, I was very, very lucky enough to be asked to read it early, A Pen Dipped in Poison. And it's absolutely wonderful. It's genuinely wonderful. Again, I, I'm I'm a big, big fan, huge, huge fan of writers who have that subtle touch, that deftness of touch when it comes to particularly crime novels. And again, it's not to it's not to say that I have a criticism of blood and guts and you know forensic analysis of of crime scenes and things like that. It's not to say that I'm not a fan of that at all. Far from it. But I love subtlety. I really, really love subtlety. It's something I strive for in my own writing. And Jonathan Hall, J.M. Hall, is a master of that. He's one of the UK's best cosy crime writers at the moment. And I do genuinely believe that because he, he is a wonderful writer and it's a, it's a gift to have him working in the, in the cosy genre. So A Pen Dipped in Poison is the, is the most recent one. But the first one in the series was A Spoonful of Murder. 
Jonathan Whitelaw, thank you so much for sharing your obvious passion for reading with us this afternoon and for introducing us to the Bingo Hall Detectives. Thank you so much for having me. An absolute pleasure. It's time to turn the page on this edition of My Life in Books. Thanks again to my guest, Jonathan Whitelaw, and to the show's producer, Sean Priest. He and I are already working on the next episode, so don't forget to join us, same time, same place, to hear another top author talking books. In the meantime, if you'd like to leaf through our back catalogue or drop us a line, here's how. Keep in touch with Red by emailing feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail on 844-971-1999 and share your favourite reads. And don't forget, you can listen again to this episode and every episode of this programme by visiting ami.ca and searching for My Life in Books or find us in whatever podcast player or smart device you use. Catch you next time. I'm Margaret Shepard of the AMI podcast, Tripping On Air. Every month, my co-host Alex Hajar and I spill the tea on what it's really like to live with MS. Watch Tripping On Air on YouTube or download wherever you get your pods.